Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozloff. Let's dive in. I don't think that there's five people in the world that know more about African-American sonnet traditions than I do. And, you know, I was very interested in that piece. Um, I've always been interested in this remark by uh, Jean Piaget that if you know, if you're the world's expert in one thing, your brain gets organized to be a world's expert in anything because you understand the nature of expertise. Deep End, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. Up your guide as we explore the possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Dr. Hollis Robbins. Dr. Robbins is Dean of Arts and Humanities at Sonoma State University. In that role, she wears many hats, administrator, teacher, scholar of black sonnets, but she's also an expert on expertise itself. Today's conversation is about frameworks for organizing knowledge. Dr. Robbins argues that our modern society suffers from mismanaged self-secretarifying. Most of us receive no formal training in how to process and sort huge amounts of information that we have to process every day. Our discussion is laced with stories about gathering data, learning organizational theory, and scaling good teaching. She is extremely well-read and drops reference to Darwin, Shakespeare, and Hollywood superagent Michael Ovitz. She also straddles the line between higher education and tech. Her involvement in both communities helps her understand how these two different worlds might both be able to learn from each other. This interdisciplinary background of hers made this conversation a fascinating examination of the interplay between breadth and depth. Before we get into the episode, I want to remind the audience about our upcoming live recording with Cooper Turley this Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be chatting about decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs. You can register for the event and live Q&A by visiting luma slash cooper. That's L-U dot M-A slash cooper. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes on to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. Hollis Robbins, welcome to The Deep End. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to speak to you. We first met on Clubhouse, and I actually saw that you recently wrote a really interesting piece in a in A16Z Futures segment on expertise. And I typically avoid discussing people's backgrounds on the show. We can usually cover that in the introduction, but I find it really fascinating that you are a dean of arts and sciences. You're at Sonoma State University in California, yet you're also interacting with so many people in the tech community. So that's on Clubhouse, but also writing for A16Z. So I'd just love to get a bit about your personal story as and how did you find yourself at the intersection of it seems like one of our most stolid institutions, higher education, with its most disruptive version, venture capital, technology, Silicon Valley. 
Uh, well, it's a great question. It's a broad question. Um, and thank you for sort of putting it that way at this moment of intersection. Um, I came actually to higher education late in my life. I started out in politics uh, growing up in New Hampshire, working on presidential campaigns. So the idea, every presidential campaign, every political campaign is a disruption in a way, right? It's trying to access the grassroots, the voters, to, to be part of an institution. So, and my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, he started companies in uh, in New Hampshire in the tech in the tech field. So that was is all familiar to me. When I moved in to higher education, um, I was really lucky to get to know uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., uh, who was perhaps the premier scholar of African-American literature in the United States, and is himself an entrepreneur. Uh, he built the biggest uh, center department of Africana studies or African-American literary studies, African-American history studies in the country, by which he, the idea of African-American studies is itself disruptive starting in the 1960s, late 1960s, when black activists after, you know, after the years of, of civil rights advocacy said, you know what, universities actually need to teach a different kind of history and has to teach an inclusive history that includes the history of black struggle and the history of African-American accomplishment and African-American books and, and science and, and all the things that uh, knowledge creation um, that African-Americans have done for this country. And so my after meeting him and beginning to study in this field, uh, my expertise is actually in African-American poetry, particularly the sonnet form. And it's such a narrow field. I'm probably, I don't think that there's five people in the world that know more about African-American sonnet traditions than I do. And, you know, I was very interested in that piece. Um, I've always been interested in this remark by uh, Jean Piaget that if you know, if you're the world's expert in one thing, your brain gets organized to be a world's expert in anything because you understand the nature of expertise. So that may be a longer answer that you wanted, but this is how I got into this field and why I think it is it is itself disruptive, uh, both as a matter of the di as of discipline and as a matter of thinking about expertise. It was a great answer because it actually gave me four or five different threads to pull on. So I'm really happy. Let's actually start with your comment about uh, Dr. Henley Lewis Gates Jr. being an entrepreneur. Whenever we talk about higher education and the disruption forward, deeply skeptical perspective that much of our listeners likely hold, the words entrepreneurship aren't going to fit, even within a tip of the top tier institution like Harvard. So can you just speak as a as a dean, as a professor, about what entrepreneurship means in your context and why or why not is that a a trend or a practice that is feels uncommon? But I'd just love to hear your perspective then. Well it's an interesting question. Entrepreneurship, there's some people who don't like the word in higher education, right? That the, the notion is that you higher education is passing on knowledge, so it's very conservative. It is literally to conserve what is known. Um, so when you, there's a new field uh, and a new field of study that says, you know, other fields, you need to step aside and make room for this new discipline. And so when I bring up Black Studies or African-American Studies, you know, 
back in the 1950s, most predominantly white institutions, certainly Ivy League institutions, didn't have this field of studies. HBCUs, of course, always did. So black studies is not entrepreneurial in an HBCU. But at a place like Harvard, uh, Skip Gates, goes by Skip, you know, said like, we need to actually be studying this literature with these texts, these people. And he's gone around um, and he's raised a lot of money. So uh, as a point of intersection, um, I believe Ben Horowitz had endowed a, uh, a, and I don't know the details, a scholarship, um, the NAS to, to study hip hop. So you see uh, Skip working in the fields of entrepreneur and venture capital to ask to say, hey, fund what I'm doing over here because we're expanding knowledge and disrupting uh, the stream of knowledge in new ways. You know, typically in a conversation about the future of higher education, expertise, gatekeeping, we'd focus it along the lines of what can higher ed learn from the tech industry? Mm -hmm. Disruption, entrepreneurship change. Let's keep pushing with those words. But what do you think the tech industry could learn from higher education, especially, but maybe not even folks who are in the education ed tech space? I like the way you've asked the question because you've asked it the other way around. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, I think you know, I think a lot about something about method, about methods of doing, about ways of approaching knowledge, about ways of approaching a field, about ways of approaching everything that's been written or said about a subject. So, you know, a young person comes to college, doesn't really know, and it's supposed to be about like their passion and what they're going to do in life. And there's all these questions. But what higher education or what a good professor does is to say in a classroom, let's look at the history of people who have looked at this subject. And what has the history told us about the subject? Even if you walk into, I don't know, a Shakespeare class, right? You're not just reading Romeo and Juliet or King Lear. A good professor will say, what has everybody else said about King Lear? Right. What did they say about King Lear 100 years ago, 200 years ago? Why are we still reading King Lear? So that there's a whole method to approaching the text that it's not about before you even open the book, <laughs> before you even open the play, right? To understand the entire context of why King Lear is sitting <laughs> on the desk in front of you. And that is, I think, in some ways, if you want to do uh, think about you know markets, if you have a if you have an idea for a new product, right? You want to say you know product market fit. What what is the market for this? And implicitly, those questions are part of how we approach knowledge in in higher education. That's how good fact good professors approach knowledge. Um, and and in some ways. You know, that's a hidden that's a hidden benefit of good professors is that kind of what is the market? What is the historical market for this particular piece of knowledge? That actually is a good pivot to your actual A16Z future piece, which is about our lack of ability to recognize actually good teaching, because you make the <laughs> obvious opener that we and I just get very, very, very annoyed at this because you see a lot of talk on Twitter does particularly well engagement wise of who needs college? There's YouTube. And you have this uh, 
funny example I'd love you to go into, which is the fact that oftentimes TED Talks, certain types of online engagement, they feel learning. I mean, I'll let you explain it, but I, I just think that's really, I think, I think it gets to the part of me that said, hmm. It's not just that I'm being a gatekeeper saying something's usually missing with those YouTube online formats. There seems to be something deeper missing. I'd love for you to get into that. It's a good, I was thinking, I had a longer version of the of the piece. It got cut down a little bit, as pieces do, um, about Charles Darwin. Um, you know, everybody kind of knows about, you know, survival of the fittest or, you know, um, uh, evolution over time, evolution of species over time. And I, I used to give this long lecture, this lecture on Darwin, the fact that he had no expertise um, he hadn't really finished college. He sort of widely was a person that would go into the field and collect beetles and various things, but he, he really, college wasn't for him. And when he joined uh, the Beagle, I think in 1833, which was, he was joined as the ship's naturalist. And his job on the Beagle was to go around um, uh, with this ship and just figure out what was there and send specimens back to uh, to England in the Royal Society. And what he was really good at was actually saving specimens, packing them up nicely, sending them back, which if you think about shipping lanes and <laughs> the length it took in, 18, in the 1830s, it was pretty amazing. Had he been a botanist, he would have just focused on plants. Had he been a zoologist, he would have just focused on animals or, you know, again, with mollusks or this or that. But because he was a generalist, he focused on collecting and preserving, drawing out, and actually looking at everything um, really closely. And it wasn't until he got back after this five-year voyage, and he kind of looked at all the data that he collected. He didn't even know what he was an expert in, right? But he was able to say, wow, let me theorize from this to something that I learned, especially in the Galapagos about finches, about tortoises, right? And so what, what he was able to understand, you know, in a TED Talk, you'd be the last five minutes of his life, right? When the first, all those years were what brought him to those, to those, to those, um, finally, his theories. And that's what I think um, real expertise and real education gets you is to what did it take Right. What was the market before we got to the, the big finish? And that is, again, what good teaching does is not just give you the satisfied, satisfying money shot of the work, but in fact, um, the labor that went into it. I'm sad that was cut from the piece, but given for everyone audience's context, there's 21 different experts. They are not all that long. So once again, it makes sense in context. But I'm glad you could talk about it here because there's a couple of different directions you could take the lesson of the story you just told. One direction is the importance of teaching, education experience. The other one that I could see, though, is someone wanting to pine more for a previous style of education. So I could hear the story you just told and say, hey, it seems like a more effective use of money, either from the government or parents student loans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would be smaller scale TL fellowships. Let's just give the Charles Darwins of the world the opportunity to study and learn and experience. Why, why do you think the, the the traditional model of higher education has holds promise for that story? 
It's also a very good question because, you know, obviously there aren't that many Charles Darwin's, and that's what the Teal Fellowship is trying to do, is trying to find somebody who could work in isolation for five years in very rough conditions with some real personnel issues going on on the Beagle and not let hit none of that got in the way of his collection, right? So he was an extraordinary person. Also, I don't know if you've read Voyage of the Beagle. It's I have definitely not. <laughs> written, right? And so one of the things that you see in, when you read it is, you know, he's a 24-year-old guy when he comes off. And he's 30 when he gets back. He's a, an extraordinarily beautiful writer. And what we forget even about Charles Darwin in doing that is the years of writing formal writing um, instruction that he has had, much better than, than we, we have in college today. Is So f I would say that formal instruction, university instruction, is important for teaching you how to communicate, teaching you how to organize, organize. Here, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, you, you get emails all the time, right? How do you organize your email files? I'm technically supposed to use the superhuman uh, <laughs> subscription that OnDeck gives me with my employment here, but I don't do it at all, and it's a disaster, and I have five different email addresses. <laughs> right. Well, okay, this is what I mean, is that once upon a time, you know, you would start a business and you'd have a secretary, and I love the word secretary, right? The word secretary, the root of it is secret. It's the person that actually keeps your secrets, right? And the person that is trained in organizing organizing the files, trained in organizing your life. And, you know, it, it would have been paper files back then, but is it alphabetical, chronological, by the important people who write to you, by the less important people that write to you? Imagine, right, if you had a secretary and you weren't self-secretarying through your apps, how much more organized and productive you might be because you have a method, right? So in previous years, I mean, this is part of what an education does is should is teach you method. One of the things that I find that we've gotten away from in, you know, this self-secretarying moment that we're living in, you know, with our open table and this and that, is that we're all messes, right? Is that I would love to to use the power of, of higher education and approach to method and actually find ways to bring it to the world of individuals, of businesses, to organize ourselves or use ways of organization such as Darwin used. I'm, I'm, I'm floundering a little bit here, but I think you know where I'm going with this, is, yeah. is try to approach knowledge the way higher education both organizes itself and should do better at teaching organization as, as part of the education. The thing that's always frustrating about speaking with someone like you about this is I have this perfect image of college in my head. Yet I think part of what drives a lot of the skepticism of the higher education system, especially in the communities that we spend a lot of time in, is most people, even, even the smartest people at, at the greatest schools, at the greatest credentials, the most tracked, you got you know your 1600 on the SATs, they don't have that experience. So I'm just can you can you can you discuss a bit the separation between the idea of what you're discussing which to me sounds brilliant you know getting I, something that was really important for me during covid and it's a huge privilege I got privilege that I got to do this was I actually was able to sit back and just read a lot uh, I just got to read 
And there was just a year and a half period where I learned far more. And I was like, man, like, you realize that's what college was supposed to be for you, right? I, I was like, man, what a terrible, terrible way. So can you speak to the gap between the idea and the actual performance at an institutional, even an individual level? Well, let me ask you one back. So what was your major in college? Political science. Okay. Where'd you go? University of Oregon. Uh, okay. Great school. Um, great program. And I take it you just didn't read enough just for fun. I didn't have... This, this sounds so foofy and lame. I didn't have a love of learning. I didn't, you know, I, 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 in a weird way, the thing that I didn't quite realize is I thought the best thing to do was to worry about this internship or that job or this club or that activity, not realizing that the reason why I get to podcast, talk to people like you is because I read a lot and I know a lot about different mm -hmm. topics and I have strong frameworks and I was able to be privileged enough to teach myself that through experience during this COVID year, but you know, that's, that's, the, that's where the gap, that's where the frustration comes from. I think that bleeds out in a lot of ways towards skepticism. So what you said the right, is kind of what I want to hone in, in on, right? Is that I think I come at education different than most faculty members, most, most deans, because I'm interested in this question of framework. I'm interested in, in larger questions of organizing knowledge. And so that is the framework where you see the disruption. Most faculty members you'd talk to or deans would talk about, you know, content. I haven't said, except for my, my expertise, expertise in, in black sonnets, I haven't talked about content at all. Mm -hmm. I've talked about form and methodology and expertise and ways that you approach knowledge, right? So probably without you knowing it, you learned an organizational principle about political science or political theory. You probably- Maybe. I'm not meaning to besmirch um, the party side department at U of O. It's, it's more that and this, is where, and this is where there's a broader conversation on whether or not these models work. And obviously at OnDeck, we're trying to figure out our own version of what, um, you know, post-college most people education looks like. But I just don't think I was personally mature or, or deep enough to even think along those lines. I, I don't think I actually was thinking at the level I needed for this to actually be useful. So that's mm -hmm. the, I think that's the dichotomy for lots of people. Well, so if... If I were running the world, right, is that I would actually start, I would I would be selling. And actually, I talked to Eric Torenberg about this at some point in time, about, about actually this sort of self-secretarying and secretarying knowledge as knowledge of how to organize things, as a place where higher education could actually help tech. And the way we, it is rather than, assume that everybody is organizing their own life and making good decisions is assume that everybody's not organizing their life and making good decisions. And rather than sending an app to do all these little pieces is actually teach organizational theory, right? Which is the theory of how to organize your files, why organize your files, how to organize knowledge, how to keep a Rolodex. Remember Rolodexes, right? Right now in your address book, it's probably alphabetical. Yep. And not sorted by usefulness, right? And but even if you got an app to sort it by usefulness, is your is your mind ready to think about what would it mean to organize your contact list by a certain kind of use? 
right? And or by concentric circles or by how long you've known them or, you know, some sort of power schematic, right? If we taught organization self-organization theory or framework theory, right, you would probably, all of us would be a lot more productive. And the thing is, we used to teach that for people who would go into clerical businesses, right? Or if you go into the 19th century, before there were photocopies, to be a clerk, to be a secretary to a great lord or whatever was a great job, you would organize their lives. Mike Ovitz, okay, so Mark Andreessen talks all the time about Mark o Mike Ovitz. He started out as and basically- for, and, and, for, and for context, everyone, that is the one of the founders of Creative Artists Agency, one of the- He's basically the biggest Hollywood super agent in the 80s and 90s. So he tells the story famously of how he started out as the, I'm forgetting the company it was, as an assistant, basically reading the files, being an overnight you know, secretary, fill-in secretary, assistant, making the phone calls and reading the files, right? And understanding through the file cabinet how a company works. So he's able to disrupt it. Now, he doesn't emphasize the fact that he started out as a secretary, right? Or uh, sounded out by understanding an organizational structure allows you then to go disrupt, right? But whether I'm talking about Darwin or whether I'm talking about industry, it's the same principle. If you understand, or King Lear, if you understand why this thing, where this thing fits into the larger knowledge structure, you have power to understand it better. I want to pivot back to the education aspect, but this is actually really interesting. I'm going to ask a question I asked you before again, but in the Michael Ovitz context, okay. because it gets at a tension, which is just honestly really fascinating for the future of the higher education space, which is, to your point, Michael Ovitz is in the talent and agenting industry. He starts in the mailroom. If you do very well in the mailroom, you then become an assistant. So there's even a level deeper of like the level of organization you're doing. And, you know, back then, this is pre-email, you're running around town, dropping, all these things are incredibly important. But that was learned on the job. So I think the part that is maybe still gap, but I guess the point is that this is the version of the Darwin problem you brought up, which is that most people aren't Michael Ovitz. So it's not helpful for me to say, but look, Charles Darwin didn't need this college thing. And Michael freaking Ovitz, look, I mean, he went to college, but like he learned that on the job that that seems to be missing the point. So can you speak to, and I don't want to sound pretentious, but to the average person, sure. how, what, what, what these ideas mean, and then what if you're really thinking about it, if most people don't have, like, I guess, obviously, if, if everyone had the chance to go on the HMS Beagle or everyone could go work at CAA, obviously, that'd be a different world entirely. But given the world we live in today, could you relate this to the actual individuals who are going to most institutions? Sure. And I would say that Charles Darwin or Michael Ovitz weren't sure what they were at the time, but what they wanted to get is the raw data right? In both cases, they were getting the raw data, right? I want to be in the files. You know, he didn't know what he was going to do. He just kind of thought, well, I want to hang around with the most important persons. This is Mike Ovitz, not, not Charles Darwin. <laughs> and Charles Darwin is just like, I want to see for myself, right? And so the uh, Jean Piaget, by the way, to, to return to him, uh, by the age of 15, 16, he was the world's expert in freshwater mollusks. And I think he lived near a 
stream and he, you know, could go to the library or whatever. And he'd be like, there isn't any, anybody's, nobody's written about like freshwater mollusks. So he, their mating patterns, what they did, what they ate, whatever. I guess they didn't walk very far as mollusks, but he wrote these, he wrote the, he wrote up these, these papers, these scientific papers and submitted it to journals and published and, you know, created knowledge at age 15, at age 16. And again, what we're seeing is a focus on raw data, right? Not having pretentious, I'm going to go be a founder someday, or I'm going to go be an expert someday, but spending enough time to say, all right, I see how I fit into knowledge, or I see how I fit into a framework. And once you position yourself there, that's the difference, I think, not the task, but is the mindset right? One of the things I think frustrates me sometimes in conversations about founders and entrepreneurs is that everybody wants to start at the top, right? Everybody wants to found something, which is great, right? The average person, I think most of us or many people, I think would find it more fruitful to start at a place where you can see where you are in the larger framework of knowledge, and see then what needs to be, how, how you might think about where, where an opening is, right? When I chose to write my book on the African-American sonnet tradition, I'm interested in poetry. I was interested in black literature, but I was also interested in something that nobody else had written about. Now, it may be that, you know, 10 people read my book. I got my first royalty check. It was for $200. My book's out for a year. I'm not going to make any money on it. <laughs> But I like knowing that there are no, there's maybe three, four people in the world, maybe five, who know more than I do about this. And I doubt that, right? There's something really, really cool about knowing more than other people about one thing. I think that's a useful lesson for folks is everyone is getting on the, the newsletter game and the Twitter thread game. There's actually a lot of there's a real lesson. And, and, and once again, like not to be too shilly for different, you know, products, but I think the thing that's cool about the quote unquote creator economy moment is actually we do live in a world where let's say you weren't in higher education, you could actually be the foremost expert on this niche, very specific topic. And if you can find those five, 10, hundred people who are either experts or deeply interested, you can actually do something with that. And that's really fascinating. But I want to, I want to get back to your actual piece, which is focused on pedagogy and just the actual art of teaching well. So I'll ask it along two lines. Let's start with the one which is closest to what you actually do, which is you know actually like teaching in a traditional brick and mortar university. What does good teaching look like in your in your context? And then next we'll answer and get to the good version of teaching in the online context. Sure. Good teaching. Um, we give away teaching awards every now and again. It's usually one a year. And the ways that various schools and programs do that is, in a lot of ways, the students decide. And the students and other faculty and, you know, the larger institution or student evaluations over 10 years. So um, in the piece I had mentioned um, uh, that was cut, cut from this piece is a, a, a professor of engineering at Cornell, Charles Williamson. Um, and my son took a class with him or a couple of classes with him in Cornell education, engineering. And um, this man is a phenomenon. And 
he had, uh, after, I guess, decades of teaching, they named a lab out uh, after him um, because for years and years, his engineers did interesting work. My son had done interesting work with him. Um, he sent, you know, his graduates far wide. So one of his uh, graduates was working at a place called Skydio, which is, um, which makes the uh, autonomous drones. And called up Williamson and said, you know, I need a good engineer because we're growing. And the guy said, well, there's this guy, Kid Asher, my son. And so that's where he works now. And he's worked for the last five years. Um, so it's not just knowledge, it's networking, it's teaching somebody how to be successful. It is really delivering education to the whole student, right? It's not coming into the class, understanding the nature of the subject, showing the student how to interact with that subject, whether it's engineering or literature, and then showing the student what you could do with that subject. I'm guessing you didn't really get as much of that as you would have liked at Oregon. Maybe you did, and you just haven't recognized it for what it was. But it really is introducing you to a subject, showing how to engage with that subject, and showing what that engagement with the subject will get you. Yeah, what's interesting there, and once again, this is to dig myself out of the hole of smearing my alma mater. It's 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 not that that well, and this is actually I think an important note for everybody, especially younger listeners who may feel frustrated because a lot of people are just questioning their experiences, especially during COVID. We'll get to that in a second, but and this is why I'm glad you focused in on frameworks because it wasn't that these things weren't there; it's that I didn't quite understand the function thereof. Yes. I, I I didn't I didn't under I didn't have a strong framework for thinking this is what I should be searching for because I never I've never been one who's particularly cared about grades or anything. So I, I wasn't motivated by that. I I was motivated by what do I need to do in order to get a job? What do I need to get the right internship? This, this, this or that. But I didn't have the right approach of here is what I want to be able to do. So I think that's a useful point there. So then the other follow-up then obviously is, can you speak about this in the online context? What do you think that looks like? If it's not the TED Talk, what what does it look more like? Again, I think it's the question of framework. So there's a lot of online, right? There's online synchronous. We're online right now, synchronous. There's online asynchronous. There's, you know, canned lectures. There's a whole bunch of ways that we can be online together. And that information and engagement and framework knowledge uh, can be transit transmitted. And again, I think this, I'm glad we're focusing on, on framework knowledge because that's, in some ways, some online classes that I've seen um, is is taught so that a course rubric would say, you know, here's a course on whatever it happens to be, you know, art history. I have a great faculty member here. It's uh, by the way, I'm dean of arts and humanities, not arts and sciences. Oh, that, apologies. All good. Yeah, no, it's all good. But I have a great art department and a faculty member who teaches art history, which for a lot of people seems like a kind of niche class, right? Uh, what do I need art history for? But she teaches the framework like, okay, you see a painting or you see something, it's not a matter of whether you like it or you don't like it. Like, what is it? Where does it fit into this larger framework of art? How do we even know it's art, right? Is it part of this school? Is it part of that school? Is it 3D? Is it 2D? Is it responding to something? Is something responding to it? Is it in a genealogy, right? And that's a, a part of this question is, you know, if you're in a genealogy, 
it starts here, people respond to it, people respond to it, and here it is, right? And if you could map art history, which is what she does, so that by the time, and I've read all the evaluations for her class, she's an incredible faculty member, and I read what the students say, and it's always like, I didn't know what, was, what I was going to learn in an art history class, and now I understand, I don't understand any better what I like or don't like, but I understand the framework. Right. So anyway, she's going to continue to teach online um, and uh, she broadens her classes. You know, this is uh, during COVID. She found that it was easier to teach art history um, online because we're already staring at a screen. So you don't have to have like slides at the front of the room mm -hmm. that people can't see. You can put the piece of art right there. So for her online and framework de delivery, it's really not about the modality. It's about how she approaches the subject and and transfers knowledge to the student and also transferred skills and understandings. A great question from our producer Jackson in the silent part of the Zoom conversation is, how do you scale quality teaching? The editorial point I'll add to his question though is, is it possible that scale doesn't make sense in higher education. Maybe it does with online, maybe it doesn't in person. So that's the part of meta commentary or add to that. But yeah, how would you how would you scale? And then if you want to engage with my point, please do. That's really the good question. It it is scale. So so well the quest the good question is scale. So there's there's the the idea that um, small classrooms and interactions like this where I can answer your questions and I can form an answer that's just for you or for the 12 people in our room with me, you know, that we can't scale that at all. Um, that's one argument. Then there's an argument like throw everything online and, you know, kids in Bangladesh and Peru who aren't don't have ad access to American education are going to get this great education. That's also, you know, that's the huge scale argument. I think there are ways, again, when we think about framework teaching, you need you if you have an expert in the field, a real expert in the field. Part of the expertise of the field is knowing the framework, right? And have that person who understands the framework teach the framework from the narrow expertise, teaching the notion of understanding the framework, and then sending you out to do. Okay, now you understand what a framework is. You know, if you understand. Okay, let me give you another example. <laughs> you probably read your De Tocqueville, right? Democracy in America. I know enough to talk about you. You're 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 seeing my strategy of academic. I know enough to talk about Tocqueville. Did I actually read the entire thing? No, but uh, go okay. on, please. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something because I've read it a couple of times all the way through. Very famously, never talk to a black woman. Okay, talk to a couple of male uh, African American enslaved individuals. Talk to a lot of men. Talk to a lot of white women. Never talk to a black woman. So I, Skip and I wrote a, an anthology came out in 2017, the 19th century African-American women writers. And it's an anthology of women in the 19th century who actually were talking about this, about democracy in America and their place in it, right? What does it mean to be newly emancipated? What does it mean to advocate for your own freedom? What does it mean once a woman, an enslaved woman was emancipated, doesn't have a father doesn't have a brother doesn't have a husband what is the relationship of that female individual to the state which is new which is brand new 
right? If you understand the framework of political theory or political science, and I can teach you and I say, okay, read read Democracy in America, but understand the framework of the question and understand what isn't being discussed there. And here's another book, right? Put them in conversation. You'll understand a lot more than just reading that book, right? And that's an example of teaching via the framework, not just teaching the context, the content of the book, right? But teaching what's missing, right? So you might think of these of these black women writers as disruptive, right, as entrepreneurial, as making space for their own voices to say new things, right? And if I, by the way, were teaching critical race theory, this is what I would teach. I would teach the framework. So in this near end section, it's really interesting speaking to a dean because once again, most of the conversations, it doesn't tend to come from someone from your perspectives. Can you just, can you just talk to us a bit about what COVID was like at a broader administrative level. I've, I've heard the, the various horror stories of the transition to Zoom mid-quarter, mid-semester, but just what what was it like to actually like help run an institution <laughs> at that level? Oy, um, you know, it, it, people are funny, right? Because there's some of us like you would have, if you were a faculty member here, I can imagine it would be great. You're tech savvy. You look at the camera, you know, like what, and we all learned about lighting, right? We all learned yeah. about lighting. We probably wouldn't have looked this good <laughs> this time last year. I found out some faculty members just had no idea. And, um, you know, this one, I had a um, one faculty member who didn't really know anything except Pinterest. So he had his students put up their papers on Pinterest. That's incredible. <laughs> Which is I I had no idea where you're going at the like I, I thought I thought you meant the only thing he spent time on was Pinterest. But no, you mean literally it was run. There's a there's a probably unlocked Pinterest board somewhere where we can discover this. That's so funny. <laughs> Which is all his student papers on it. And I'm like, you can't do that. You're like, that is such a violation of everything. Right. So when you ask me as a dean, the kind of problems that I'm dealing with, that's the kind of problem that I'm dealing with, which I found out halfway through the semester because somebody said, like, my Pinterest is down and I feel like I'm going to get get a bad grade. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. I had another film professor who just didn't know how to do the films. So he was running them on his TV, recording the films on his on his cell phone, and then emailing that to, to people because he just didn't know the tech, right? And I would say... You know, we get people training is just grace. We need to have grace. We need to like it's gonna be okay. <laughs> so we had people disappearing. We had you know terrible things. I had a faculty a student who worked for the student paper who used to drive thirty miles um, to to upload the stories for this paper from McDonald's because he lived on a farm and he didn't. That's the only place he could get internet. Um, so uplifting stories, funny stories. It was really hard. Yeah. And I believe, are you all on the quarter system? Semesters. So we just started, or I think we're four months, four weeks into the fall semester. I mean, how did you, how did you think about this semester? Because at a narrative level, this was the real test. 
Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you just, how did you think about it and, and how's it been going? Well, before Delta, you mean, like yes. we really hoped to have almost all in person. Um, and today or yesterday I was talking to a really beloved faculty member um, who didn't want to tell me, didn't want to tell anybody um, <clears throat> that he's hard of hearing. And he just, he said, I, I didn't know how much I was depending on lip reading. And I can't teach in person because I don't, I can't hear anything. Um, you know, everybody being masked in a small classroom with the windows open and the traffic noises. And I said, well, go back online, right? You know, and I understand it. Let's have the students have some activities. Let's keep as much in person, but you clearly can't teach this way. So I try to do individualized support for every single faculty in ways that help the student, that help the faculty member, that help the pedagogy. Because, and there's every, there's a million of those. I think the thing that's fascinating here, and this is why I like revisiting the will COVID fundamentally disrupt college conversation a year and a half in to everything we're going through, because I think we can largely agree that the status quo was far more resilient than anyone projected mm -hmm. or would have expected, especially folks who were on the disruption side. So I would just, I would just love your, your take as to why it feels as if the underlying model was resilient, both positive and negative, because the negative version, which was just preface is, well, of course, at the end of the day, college is a nightclub and our society is just too credentialist and people just don't really get it. It's, it's this very kind of blame everyone else type mentality. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'm editorializing a bit more than I normally do, but I'm, I kind of have a bit of an objection to that. But I'm just curious how you would think about the status quo maintaining itself. I think there's there's a lot to be maintained that is very good about bricks and mortar higher education. Um, you know, part of the reason I, I came to Sonoma State, which is part of the Cal State system from Johns Hopkins, where I had been for 12 years, is I was really very tired of seeing my students in debt, right? And seeing students panic, especially in their senior year of being hundreds and thousands of dollars in debt. And, you know, the Cal State system is we deliver very good at Sonoma State, particularly a liberal arts education for under $10,000. That's amazing. And I really wanted to be part and want to be part of this project of, you know, again, students come in, they have a general education requirement. And this part, I think, can be disrupted a great deal because, you know, having the state say you need to know these, the, these things, it's kind of watered down. But once you get into the discipline, if you're a political science major, a physics major, an art history major, we have faculty that will do what I say, and I think everywhere in the country does this, organ, teaches you how to organize knowledge effectively. I actually think we could do a better job at this. I think we spend too much time on content and not as enough time on frameworks. Um, I think our best teachers focus on frameworks. And this model, I think, is the resilient part of it because it's not a matter of what course content I told you about, but 
over and online, it's easier to teach framework thinking and then to allow you in your downtime to go read all the books on the shelf behind you and, and understand how to think about them and how to position them in, in your consciousness and in the world's consciousness. I'll return then to the scalable question because I think the interesting thing about the higher education space is that if you dig deep enough or if you're interested in good faith, you could find all these really interesting examples. So for example, you know, in your case, um, liberal arts, cost containment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it never feels like that scales. Um, so can you just, can you speak to that? Can you, like, I, if, I, I that, that's, that's just the frustrating part because I'll put on my more skeptical hat then. It's just sort of like, it's like, oh, congratulations. I'm happy that you know, like how, how, how big is Sonoma State University? We've, it's about 8,000 students, undergraduate and graduate students. So then you get to the thing, which is that, so it's, it's genuinely very great that, you know, 8,000 to 10,000 students can get that. But how does that scale or, wh or why doesn't that seem to scale? Well, okay. So the Cal State system of 23 campuses is the largest public university system in the country. So one in 20 people in the United States gets their degree from the Cal State system. So we're the biggest. Wow. And that was part of why I wanted to come to this small campus that's part of this big campus, because I can experiment a little bit here, mm -hmm. like with this, you know, thinking about organization or secretarial clerical work and trying to think about, for example, preparing people to go work in the tech sector with not only a degree, but a, a degree in an understanding of methodology and clerical, those kind of clerical skills. I can experiment here. But as a matter of scale, I think if we, I think focusing more on method and frameworks, um, the idea is, you know, we're teaching everybody, we're teaching lots of people, but what are we teaching you, right? Mm -hmm. And what is what are we teaching every graduate? And can every graduate leave leave the with a degree and translate that degree into framework success wherever they're wherever they're doing whatever they're doing? Because that's the scale right, is, you know, you, you sell, you know, billions of or how many cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we're all using them for our own purposes. You're not scaling the purpose, you're scaling the product, right? Or you're scaling the, 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 the selling of it, right? Everybody takes an Uber or a Lyft to the place that they're going. Right. So the education part is already scaled or we all we're doing it in small classrooms, in big classrooms. We don't think about like what part of it is is scaling. The usefulness is being scaled. And I think we can teach that usefulness a little bit better. So for my final question, another idea that was mentioned in your piece, and maybe you wrote more about it in the draft version, is just this idea of gatekeeping. And I'm very interested in gatekeeping at an almost philosophical level, because once again, if you're looking at a lot of the rhetoric and the actual important driving ideas behind a lot of the companies that folks in the on-deck community are focused on, it's about pushing aside gatekeepers. And gatekeepers, and you started out by talking about the lack of African-American studies before the 1960s, that was the definition of some of the worst types of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure if we'd spoken to gatekeepers in the 40s and 50s, they could have given us a very articulate and well-considered reason why that wasn't true. And we all know that wasn't actually <laughs> true. 
So at the same time, though, I think there's a million ways that I'm sure every listener can come up with that actually gatekeeping can be a good thing. So how do we how, how do we balance gatekeeping by pushing aside the arbitrary, pushing aside the bit that clearly is, I don't want to say cronyism, but cronyism is the adjacent word to what it is. So cr- gatekeeping to arbitrarily defend a status quo that benefits a specific set of people. I think that's a good way of putting what was going on in the 50s. How do we just think about that? How do you think about that as an educator? Well, I think about gates in two ways. You can close them and you can open them, right? So so gatekeeping is both about what you keep out and what you let in or the fact that there's a border itself, right? And that's really in, in terms of frameworks, right? And the doors. I'm in an office. You're probably in an office. You have a door to your office. There's a reason that it's closed sometimes. There's a reason why it's open sometimes, right? And so in organizational systems, you know, the ways things are circumscribed, you know, I want to look at this and not that right? I want to study this and not that, right? When you're putting something in a Petri dish, you only put certain things in, you leave other things out. You don't want confounding variables, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about gates, gates are really the thing that you're leaving out or that you're letting in. And whether it's knowledge or whether it's a topic or it's a discipline, um, I think about the gates as, as necessary for all knowledge. Otherwise, everything's sort of blah, right? Everything is everything. Well, everything isn't everything. A book has a beginning, middle, and end, right? And, you know, you've got to end this book and start a different book so that I have only a wholly productive thought about gate gatekeeping as the thing that where something ends and something begins and you can choose whether to go in and out. You're, I'm sure your door is probably closed right now for sound it is yeah it is it is uh everything <laughs> everything is closed right now windows included <laughs> i think this was this was really useful um hollis thank you for coming just because i really i really hope listeners think hard about the frameworks part because you know to the to better clarify my comment about reading it wasn't just that i spent covid reading books it's that I had an idea, I had a frame, and that process, like you said, actually led to something. So that's something that we probably too often ignore. So last thing here would be, I would love for you to shout out any recent irrelevant work people should look at. Maybe, maybe just maybe you can pick up some, actually, can you give, oh, this is interesting. Let's put aside the um, racial aspect. Can you give a case for sonnets? Why should yes. listeners be interested yes. in sonnets? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for that. That is the, the question that's after my heart. So sonnets are, you probably, do you know what a sonnet is? I know what a sonnet is. Well, get, tell me what you know about it. You've cheated. I can, I, it's sonnets to me. It's like the, it's like the pornography quote. I would know a sonnet if I saw it, <laughs> but I cannot okay. define it on a podcast. <laughs> no, that's, that's totally fine. It's like most people know what m- more than you'd think, right? It's a small form. It's a small poetic form. It was first come, uh, invented in the 12th century Italy. It's 14 lines, but these 14 lines are organized a very particular way. There's eight lines, an octet of a problem and six lines of a resolution. 
right? And they're in the iambic pentameter. So da 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 da. And so this, and they've got a kind of formal rhyme scheme. But if you think about this little structure, it allows you to do so much stuff with it. On the on the one hand, but what about this? I've got a problem here, and this is how we're going to think about it. So it started out like a fair maiden in courtly love tradition. Look at this beautiful fair maiden, but I've got so much to do, and in, in fact, I'm going to go do this, and I can't be in love with you. Or you're so wonderful, why are you so mean to me? But kind of I like it when you're mean to me, right? <laughs> so there are all sorts of these really wonderful ideas and everybody was playing with them and everybody's so they're like TikToks. They were the TikToks of 13th century England. By the time they, I mean, of Italy, by the time they got to England and Shakespeare got a hold of them, he changed them around to be some of the same thing, except the last two lines is, and this is why I'm going to last longer than you because I'm the one that wrote this, right? And that's what a Shakespeare sonnet. When you think about what African-American poets did, they were like, what do you mean fair maiden? Right. And so they started actually writing sonnets about being a person of color. They were saying, okay, this is a really tight, constrained thing. I want to break out of it and do my own thing with this. They signified on the sonnet as, as Skip Gates would be. Right. So if you have a structure, you can break out of the structure. But everybody for how many, uh, 6,600 years has been using this same form. And when you write a sonnet, like Terence Hayes did, like Natasha Trethewey did, like Gwendolyn Brooks used to, you are part of this long genealogy and you will be immortalized by participating in this genealogy. That is why you should like sonnets, read them, <laughs> read my book on them and write them yourself. This podcast is going to go on for a very long time, hopefully, but I can guarantee this will be the most articulate case for the sonnet all listeners were over here. Hollis, thank you so much for coming. This has been this has been really great, and uh, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thank you so much. It's really been a delight to speak with you. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.